Aaron Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with Andy Slater and Jacob Dillon. They are here to talk about a really cool new documentary they enjoyed a lot called Echo in the Canyon. It's about the Laurel Canyon scene of the 60s. It also includes the making of a bunch of covers of the Laurel Canyon music that Jacob did with a truly all-star crew ranging from Eric Clapton and Stephen Stills to Fiona Apple and Beck. Just seeing you guys do the music are some of the best parts of the documentary, but then there's interviews with everyone from David Crosby to Ringo Starr to Roger McGuinn, who seemed to be one of the most fruitful interviews. And he's such a cool, humble dude. In general, before we get to some of the individual interviews, I mean, Jacob, you were saying you'd never really done an interview before, and here you are with some of the greatest musicians of an era. But you seem pretty comfortable with it. I think you just talked to the musician to musician, really. I think so, yeah. I hadn't really had any experience doing that, but I have a lot of experience talking to people though I think that was the beginning point and uh, yeah just trying to find a space for these people create a space where they could be comfortable and talk about whatever they recall or whatever they want to discuss about that specific time in their lives but really I give you a recommendation if you do get a chance to interview you know someone like Brian Wilson all you really do have to do is just stay out of the way that's right you know create a situation where they feel like they can talk about whatever's on their mind and then just kind of shut up totally and the impetus for this movie kind of came from the album was that what happened or was it all one idea how did that come about Andy you're the director well I think it started with where we were in our lives at the time I had just left Capitol, which we will call Fired, and Jacob had just made a record with the Wallflowers and was trying to sort of figure out to do that again or what to do, you know, where to go in terms of record making. And we saw this film, Model Shop, which was uh, done by Jacques Demy in the 60s, and the film itself showed us places in L.A. that we had traveled to in a sort of really innocent time, and it sparked an idea of like what was going on then and what kind of music was there. We, I mean, we knew it. It just reminded us of the things that made us love California and and love LA and so we went back and started to look at these songs to see which ones we could do and do in a way in a more modern way and reinterpret and then that led us down the path of finding out what was on these songs or what was behind them because behind every great song is a story and the stories led us to the bands and the bands led us to Laurel Canyon and it all sort of came together as a singular narrative in the film. Again, Jay, not only have you never been an interviewer, but you know this is a, an entirely new territory for you. Was there any trepidation about putting yourself out there as the face of the movie? Because you could have done it more behind the scenes, or what was your thinking behind that? Well, we needed to have somebody take us around, some kind of host. And if I didn't do that, there wasn't really going to be a lot of involvement for me in this particular picture. Yeah. So I offered myself right up. You know, we just kind of began an adventure. No, we didn't spend any time asking ourselves when we started. I mean, Andy, he's never directed a film before. I never was a host of a film before, but we, I think we we both had the spirit of you know why not i think to do any of these things if you just you know if you have great taste at least you believe you have great taste and these <laughs> things are like why not us why can't we and it was also important specifically with andy his understanding of this music he might have been the only one to make this documentary because it's not really specifically about laurel canyon and the hippies and that kind of thing it's really about the songs and the bands that were playing them and the, them sharing ideas so i don't know that a typical director could have really gotten behind that and understood why the movie would work if we did it correctly but i mean to be fair we went to typical directors it wasn't like hey we can do anything we're not mm. that naive but <laughs> I, well i'm I, sorry I, to interrupt you that's right we did want to have someone else make it at first but nobody was interested for a number of different reasons mm. and you know one of them being they wanted to do their own thing and one of the other ones being you know they had didn't really understand how all of this 
came together. I think my life as a rock critic, I mean, I made this movie for rock critics because I was a rock critic. You know? sure. And I worked for Rolling Stone. And, you know, in the beginning, we all knew that this was going on. We knew that Brian Wilson was inspiring the Beatles and the Beatles were inspiring Brian Wilson. But no one ever took the time to tell the story of that early period of Laurel Canyon where everyone came out here to be like the Beatles. When the birds electrify folk music and Roger has seized the the 12 string in Hard Day's Night and starts to electrify all of those songs, Pete Seeger's Turn, Turn, Turn and Bells of Rimney and other things. Obviously, it inspires the Beatles to do something on Rubber Soul. You hear in the film, George Harrison writes, If I Needed Someone. That goes on Rubber Soul, and Brian Wilson hears Rubber Soul, and he makes Pet Sounds, and then the Beatles hear Pet Sounds, and they make Sgt. Pepper. But to me, that's such a pivotal moment in the history of recorded music, all of those records. So I was trying to find a way to honor that by seeing this film and by working with Jacob and figuring out how we could take another generation of writers and bring them together and make something modern and of something classic. Jacob, did you grow up with this music? I mean, I, I think you like The Clash and other stuff. I don't know if this was like your music uh, until well, later. Well, you know, I mean, I've certainly spent a lot of time in my career talking about The Clash, that's for sure. <laughs> But yeah, that, and I've said plenty of times, I mean, that's just music that really had a huge impact on me when I was, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old. And I do believe that the music that you do find at that age you can never be struck quite the same way again. So for me, that's what that was. And it was groups, it was English rock groups, etc. To answer your question specifically, no, this wasn't my go-to music when I was a teenager, but these songs, everybody's, I always knew these songs because I was too young to have been there. Then you go backwards and you do discover the birds and you do discover Mamas the Papas, but I had to do research. You know, I had to go backwards. I wasn't alive when they were active the same way the groups that you just mentioned, like The Clash were when I was a teenager, which point being that's so important to the film Tom Petty, his passion for that music, it's just what I described. He was 12, 13, 14 years old. Yeah. He was starting bands when he was listening to this music. So his understanding and his connection to those records and those artists is simply beyond mine because I just wasn't there. Yeah. And it's obviously so nice and in an obviously very unplanned way, incredibly moving to see him in the film. Sure. I mean, what was your time like with him for the movie? How well did you know him before that? What was all that like? Well, I'd known him for many years. I don't pretend to know very many people, including my good friends very well, but there's a lot of surprises to everybody, more and more so. But I was lucky enough that I'd spent time with him throughout the years, personally and professionally. He allowed my group to come out and open for him a number of different times. All memorable, all classy. All, all of that an honor and um, he, it was important to us to have him there for the reason I said of being a big fan but one of the things I always like to mention about Tom is that he was incredibly supportive and encouraging of younger artists and I've been around plenty of people of similar age groups who were just not sure they're competitive for unknown reasons but Tom was he just to me he seemed to just always be passionate the kids that fall in love with rock and roll a lot of people just grow out of that at some point but his enthusiasm from what I saw, remained the same his entire career. And before he even came on board to uh, be interviewed, I just sat with him and played him the recordings of the record. Yeah. And, you know, he's the only person, this is totally true, that just actually just was quiet. Not just for this record. Anytime you play, I don't know if you have a band. I'm gonna, do you ever, ever have a band? Yes. <laughs> you did. Okay, did you ever get through one song with your friend, just shut up and listen to the song and just not talk, ask who right. the bass player was? <laughs> Where'd you guys do this? Right. What's that sound? Right. It's just like, that's what everybody does. I guess I'm sure I do also. Tom is the only person I can recall that actually just closed his eyes and listened to every song. And some of these songs he's heard a million times. Yeah, that's why. You know, but yeah. he actually was just, that's how he receives music is he would devote his time to listening to it. And that's his enthusiasm for the recordings is why it occurred to us why we not we should be having Tom talk in this movie because his understanding is phenomenal of this music. Yeah. 
I mean, Tom really plays the professor in this film. Yeah. And Jacob plays the seeker, and Tom is the sort of you know, guy. I don't interrupt you. You said that once before about the professor. Every time you say that, I think that we make like a bicycle out of a couple coconuts and <laughs> make a raft out of well, a banana. We, we could have put him in a herringbone jacket with I keep a, thinking of you know, Island. That's not what you're talking about. No. Well, I just think, I mean, in reality, he bridges the gap between the two generations. You're Mr. Howell. You know, he, well, okay, yes. He, <laughs> Mr. Howell, maybe. But really, he's the guy who bridges that gap. He loved that music. As Jacob said, he was inspired by it. You have those guys who were really prevalent in 1965, and then you have Beck and Regina and they're another generation in the middle there is Tom sort of disseminating the information so he became an incredible asset to us making the film and how about Roger McGuinn who again like super humble dudes with very vivid memories he was particularly hilarious his, his Brian Wilson anecdote was hilarious with the speed <laughs> what did you take yeah. away from that conversation he's a giant he's a fascinating character and, and I think if you're someone like myself or you know people that I spend time with I think you know that and some people might not notice that all the time because he's just not a loudmouth like most celebrities tend to be, who just share way too much. You know, I'm, I wouldn't speak for him, but his he does, he's not lurking anywhere. He's a powerhouse. He's a big presence. And um, some of his stories were fantastic, and they all were and entertaining and interesting, but I don't know that he feels the need to uh, promote himself all day long like, like I'm doing right now. Well, it's, it's <laughs> wild. I mean, just the way that he's conducted his career is fascinating. He plays little folk concerts at like folk institutes and stuff when he could go out under the bird's name and be playing arenas you know and he's resisted that it's kind of fascinating to watch of I, all the 60s legends he seems to lead the most low-key existence maybe i think it's you know part of uh, what you might be picking up on is maybe he's comfortable with himself yeah and a lot, you know you could say mark knopfler is similar I mean, you could put Dire Straits together with anybody who wants, probably, and you'd be at RFK Stadium tomorrow. Right. So there's, there's some people who just don't, they're not always chasing a carrot. They're satisfied, and they know their lane, and they're happy with that. And, you know, hopefully more of us could feel that way more often. Yeah. Well, one of the things in the film that's great about Roger, you know, you think of him as a sort of serious guy, as a spiritual guy, and when he's talking to Jacob, there's just a nonchalance about his conversation that's so great as a viewer to watch. And he told us all these stories. I mean, we asked him about, we'll meet again on the Berserkin, and, and we asked him why he did that. And he said he had seen Dr. Strangelove, and he saw that Kubrick film, and he saw the last scene, and he said he had taken some acid to go see the film, hmm. and he, when he came out, he thought the film was in color, and then he did that <laughs> song. So, but that's the kind of stuff you get in the film, and that's the kind of stuff he gave us. And don't forget, too, when you mentioned Roger, I mean, none of this is possible without him. You know, and that's explained in the movie. So not just as a member of the birds and an architect of their sound and his abilities to take those songs and transform them, his original, you know, intent of taking some of those folk songs, making pop songs out of them. I mean, it, he's one of the guys that's a key turning point in rock's history is him taking that. And it's explained more in depth in the film that a lot of that has to do with the Rickenbacker guitar itself. Yeah. I mean, they're so casual talking about these, like, what, in retrospect, were basically like world historical turning points you know i i heard the beatles and then i did this and then i went in one day and you know bam changed the course of musical history it's interesting well for sure i don't think we could say anything similar about the atmosphere we live in today it's just so much amazing stuff happening so quickly like music changing moments so quickly you know and then there are songs that are not so obvious that are changing moments but really to me expecting to fly which frames the film represents so much of of the body of the film i mean that song just even in, in its title of itself it represents that no matter how outlandish somebody's dreams were 
mm. that they could come true. Mm. And I think that's something of the 60s. But, you know, and we all know that that kind of boundless optimism never lasts. So the film sort of lays out why it doesn't last for those musicians. I mean, you hear different things. You know, Roger tells you that the birds broke up because of David, and David tells you why that was, his personality trait, which I won't say on radio. And, you know, Michelle tells you that she liked uh, Denny. <laughs> she was married to John, and that breaks up. And then Stephen tells you that the Springfield broke up because they were really all going in, you know, there was so much talent, and it was divergent directions. As a musician, learning those songs and playing those songs, which you did, what struck you the most? You learned a bunch of them and played a bunch of them. What kind of stuck out? Because it's different listening versus like actually learning every chord in them, every bit of the arrangement. Like, what did you take away from learning that stuff? Those are all masterful songs. You don't necessarily need a lot of chords to make songs, and sometimes it's preferred that you don't. But these songs were masterfully put together in their structure, and they're not real. You know, a really good song can actually be difficult and complex to play, but it actually sounds effortless and easygoing. And these songs are not effortless and easygoing for musician or singer. Mm. None, of, none of them really. Mm. But the trick is to make it sound like. What was hardest then? Probably just wasn't made for these times. Yeah. It's just a very complex melody and arrangement and it's not um, you learn when you're doing this how writers have their own they have a particular way of doing things that you're not really noticing sometimes how different it really is than what you do because when I would go left he would go right mm. and there was a lot of that in his instincts I just didn't relate to it all when it came time to sing them it's like it was mind-blowing what I would be trying to do but it didn't my instincts weren't as useful as yeah. other artists I might be covering I loved hearing you sing uh, going back which uh, Springsteen covered that. Uh, Heard that, yeah. Yeah, and and sort of the, and his version is kind of close to a Nils Lofgren version. There's like a whole history his is of almost yeah. His has got a big kind of a was that the Roxy possibly? Yeah, that was Mid the period 70s, in which is yeah that, exactly yeah, yeah 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 yeah. No, his is fantastic. It's reminiscent of his material. He it's a little slower than I, maybe close to the original tempo. Really, ours might be a little quicker. But uh, no, I heard that not too long ago. I thought it was absolutely great. There's obviously like a slight vocal similarity. So, you know, hearing you do it reminded me specifically of his, interestingly. Well, um, I would like you to get us confused more often, <laughs> actually. That'd be great for me. So I want to take a moment and talk about Vivid Seats. Staying at home is great, but eventually you just got to get out of the house. Whether you go out to see your favorite band or go cheer on your favorite team in person, you got to get out of the house. You got to have a night out. And with Vivid Seats, you can attend the concert of your choice, the sports event of your choice, whatever event you're looking for at a great price. Vivid Seats is the top source for tickets for all the live events you might want to go to. On their site, you can sort by price or look for seats in the section and row of your choice. You can pick the seat you want. To make things even better, Vivid Seats is giving listeners an exclusive promo code for new customers to receive 10% off your first ticket order to save even more money. Just go to the App Store or Google Play and download the Vivid Seats app. First-time customers can use promo code ROLLINGSTONE, that's R-O-L-L-I-N-G-S-T-O-N-E, for 10% off your first Vivid Seats order. Every purchase is backed by a 100% buyer guarantee, from the biggest concerts and games to the hottest theater and more. Vivid Seats has it all. Download the app and enter promo code ROLLINGSTONE for 10% off your first order on Vivid Seats. Make a memory that lasts a lifetime and let Vivid Seats help you get to your favorite live event. So again, Michelle Phillips, who I've spoken to, is just a lot of fun, and she seemed really delighted just by seeing the music played back to her. What did you take away from that encounter? Well, you know, the song was their first single, Go Where You Want to Go, was Mama's and Papa's first single in 65. And I think for her to hear it again, 
First of all, she tells you the personal story behind it, which is really that John Phillips writes it to her and says, go where you want to go. As uh, she says in the film, it should be called Go Where You Want to Go, Bitch. Yeah, it's a um, real Fleetwood Mac-style kiss-off, a real precursor of sort of that Lindsay Stevie vibe. Yeah. Absolutely. and, and Go I, your own way, you know. Yeah, yeah, and so the basic musical arrangement of that song, if you listen to the original, the cadence of the way they're singing is, it's a very kind of 60s up with people kind of delivery. <laughs> and I think when... Jacob and Jade from Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros do it. It's sung a little straighter, so for her to hear it as a sort of straightforward, powerful folk rock song, I think was was nice for her, and you see that in the film. So how did you get the exact focus? As you said, it's not. Ex- it's more about the birth of folk rock than the Laurel Canyon scene in its most sort of cliched form, because that actually was a little later. Well, so how did you kind of decide that focus versus the other? You know, people associate Laurel Canyon with the singer-songwriter. To me, there's three different things that happen. One is this age of innocence where people come here to be like the Beatles because the birds have a hit and they're supposed to be the American Beatles and they have multiple singers and they get together and they live in Laurel Canyon and they're in these bands. And then the age of psychedelia happens and things get a little crazy and the doors happen and people start coming here and San Francisco happens. And then there's a retrenchment to country and folk and there's the search for the individual. These guys all want to do their own thing. And that's really the period that I think is the most classically associated with Laurel Canyon where it's Joni Mitchell and the band is called Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young instead of the Buffalo Springfield. So the focus for me was always that period because it seemed the most pure. It seemed the most innocent. It seemed like something that hadn't been explored. And we were telling a story. You don't want to tell somebody else's story. You want to tell your idea. As you know, as probably as a writer. Sure. The lineup, the sort of living room rehearsal hangout lineup of Beck, Regina Spector, Cat Power, and Jacob, was that just who was rehearsing for the show or was it kind of also set up for the film? I mean, those scenes were really interesting and, and that didn't, unique. That didn't look organic and natural. We were all just hanging out <laughs> talking how, about music from Laurel Canyon. If, if it was still 1966, yeah. that might be how things still went um, down, yeah. Well, those are, you know, they're all in the performance at the concert yeah. and the film, and they're friends of mine and Andy's. Yeah. But they're also looking at records. I mean, that's the whole thing. You know, back even when I was growing up, when a record came out, it was so important. If a Prince record came out, it was so important. And so, you know, sitting there and looking at an album cover that's 12 by 12, that is the singular image you're going to find with a band, you know, that's what created the, the great alchemy of music. You know, it wasn't just, it wasn't just the sound of something. If, I think if rock and roll success was based on great musicianship, Toto would have been the biggest band because they were the best musicians. But, you know, it's not. It's based on love and sex and angst and how those things are distilled in two-dimensional images on album covers is the basis for rock and roll. So when they sit there and examine that stuff, it's a really nice moment of sort of going back in time and being in that place. I would say the only person who looked truly uncomfortable was Beck. I don't, I don't think it was his vibe to, to be uh, chatting on camera with uh, you guys. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I know he loves that music, and he's, you know, Beck knows a whole lot about a whole lot of things. I'm you know? sure, and That yeah. music may, may not be something people think is where his biggest understanding or interest comes from, but I found that to be not true at all. He knows his stuff extremely well. It's a big fan. And, uh, I would say a the, big searcher. I would say the professor would give him an A-plus on mm-hmm. that subject. Yeah, no, it's more the format of the, you know, <laughs> the hang was, but that's uh-huh. that's always, I mean, have, I would say that for the most part, it seemed very natural because th- that kind of thing can be contrived when you put that together. You know, the but, problem is yeah. you put a camera on people yes. and it's just takes a while for them to forget 
that the camera's there. But to make the narrative of the story work, you have to take the content that sort of works. And some of the things they were saying was, you know, early on in the camera being in their face. But, you know, that's just what you have to do. I mean, you were saying that the trick with Brian Wilson is to step back. And I have colleagues who worked extensively with him. And, it, you know, it's he's Brian Wilson. It's tricky. You don't know what you're going to get on any particular day. But it seemed like at least what we saw was really great. But what was that like navigating? Had you ever met him before? What was that all like? I didn't, no, I'd never met him. Uh, but those things are totally on their, on their terms. I mean, if, if they're willing and if they're going to come down, and I mean, chasing someone like Brian to come down, who is obviously really important to the film, you know, I would ask myself all the time, like, why the hell would he want to like be talking about those days? I mean... I hope I don't have to talk about things from 40 years, 50 years ago all the time. But <laughs> So, I mean, it's remarkable that they would want to come down. But, you know, Brian being someone, maybe even more so than some of the other people in the film, like he's around all the time. He's touring. He does interviews. So having these people revisit, you know, was, that made me uncomfortable at times, asking these people to go backwards. Because plenty of people just don't want to. Somebody who we know who knows Brian said to us, look, when you start talking to Brian don't start talking about good vibrations is your first question. Brian likes food. Mm. Talk to Brian about food. Right. So we started talking about chicken. You know, there's this chicken place across from Capitol called Al Wazir where the chicken's really good. And, and it didn't have, a, there was really nowhere to put it in the narrative, but <laughs> it did seem to make him comfortable. Anyway. Obviously, you were the Wallflowers manager during the greatest part of the 90s. How did you guys first get together? How did that all come about? Well, I was going to this store in LA where there was some vintage clothing and because I, I knew this girl that had worked there and there was a guy sitting in the corner who they said was doing security. He didn't really look very much like a security guy and it was Jacob. I have the build for it, but not really the instincts. <laughs> <laughs> we had met earlier in a recording studio briefly, but we really started to talk about music and putting the wallflowers together. And But it began in the clothing store. He's a great security guy, I'll tell you. <laughs> the film thing doesn't work out, you know? Security is your thing, but Insecurities like that are going much better at that. Watching the movie, it feels like in a great way and then kind of a sad way how distant those times are and how much music has changed and how much the industry has changed. It also has changed a lot since 1996, since Bringing Down the Horse came out. I mean, it's like, it seems kind of miraculous and delightful that a band with the sound that you guys had were, you know, like ruling MTV for a while. Even then, it was a little bit out of time, you know, what you were doing. Yeah, it, well, you know, it was. With the Wallflowers, the last, one of the last records we made, no, actually, it was one of my solo records, probably from like 2010 or something. I remember I read a review of a show or something, and the woman said, with, you know, wearing his um, in vogue on board with getting the new hat, the Stetson on. And I thought, you know, no, we were wearing hats and playing Dobros and mandolins. You know, when we, we started, the, whatever became called, I don't think they used that word Americana when we started in terms of like a genre of music, but there was other people playing similar to us at the time, but it wasn't, uh, it, it makes sense to them because we chased that music because we always thought that was the best. And then that sound does go back to the, some of the songs in this film for sure. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that happened in the 90s is that once Nirvana broke through and the idea of what could be on the radio exploded, it opened the door for other things that weren't really, like you guys that weren't, wasn't really of a piece with it, but it just, if that thing worked, like, who are we to say this won't work? You well, know, that kind of thing. There was an aspect of that. I mean, remember, The Wallflowers made a record in 1991 and it was on Virgin. Of course, yeah. And just to start, I would say for me, it was always about the song and the singer, you know, and it's pretty 
immediate. Do I believe the guy singing? Is he telling me a story that I care about? And when I first met Jacob and I got those first songs that wound up on that first record, I mean, you knew that this was a guy who had something to say. I mean, songs like Birdcage and songs like Hollywood and Ashes to Ashes and Biorongo were great. And so they obviously inspired us to, at least inspired me, to work hard to try to spread that music. The turning point, I think, was when the Counting Crows had a big hit record. Yeah. And that opened the door for an elbow, I guess, in independent music. You know, you, we had already had Nirvana and we had Pearl Jam and grunge was firmly entrenched both in the popular culture and in the alternative culture. And at that moment, labels were looking for their version of that. And luckily, somebody believed that the Wallflowers could have a place in the great tapestry of modern music. And you continue to write great songs, but you were writing great songs, both on even on the first album that's a little more overlooked than on that one. I mean, how did Adam Aduritz get on 6th Avenue Heartache? How did that come about? Well, you know, I knew Adam around town at that time. He used to bartend once in a while at a venue we used to play when we were in between record deals, you know. But I just knew him around town a little bit. And um, actually, you know, also T-Bone Burnett, who produced Bring On The Horse, he was responsible for their... That's right, their, did their, their, Miss, their yeah. debut, yeah. yeah. So there was a connection there, and it was, um, you know, it was something missing on that song. You know, we needed something, and record companies, you know, they still do it now. I mean, that's what people just jam this person with that person, and one plus one is three. That's what record companies always have wanted to do, so... That was somebody's idea at the time, and, you know, I always liked Adam. I thought he certainly got a memorable, a unique way of singing. Yeah. So, you know, it was very organic, though. Yeah, I once, well, I was doing a story with him, and he once jumped on stage and sang karaoke with me, and I said, oh, this is what it's like to be back, I feel like Jacob right now. <laughs> he mm, came okay. in. <laughs> Great. The How'd, only you, like? time, the How'd only, you like it? The only time in my life I ever thought that. Uh, it was pretty cool, actually. It was very sweet. I was really struggling with the song, and he just leaped up on stage and sang back up. Oh, uh, he's a great guy. But that particular song was something, you had written that, like, way before, like when you were 18 or something. That's true. You know, I had that around, we, we did make our first record for Virgin Records in 91, and I had that song, and the producer at that time just didn't hear it. It wasn't one of the songs that he thought was that compelling. I had it, and I had a bunch of other ones. And it, my recollection is, especially at that beginning phase of doing this stuff, and I had never made a record. I had to be trusting somebody, you know, and he's like, he just didn't really hear it. Record company didn't really hear it. Although Mr. Slater right next to me, he heard it. And when yeah. I told him, when he brought it up, he said, um, why aren't you guys recording that song? I said, you know, he's not really hearing that song as something to go on the record. And I kind of thought, because I knew how much Andy liked that song. And I had said, like, you know, do you want me to jam it through or something? He waved his hand. He said, no, 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 no. We'll save it for the second record anyway. Smart. That's how it should go down. Management. Well, yeah. smart. Well, yeah. smart. Yeah. yeah. To be honest, I don't think T-Bone heard it either. I, I think it was kind of, a, I was like this annoying insect on somebody's food. Oh, I kept saying, I look, this song is great. I don't recall it quite that way, but <laughs> yeah, I don't think we were good enough to play it, really, honestly, at the time. band had to get better. And how about One Headlight? Like, what do you remember about writing about that song? more looking back well that was one of the last things I'd written just before I think we got to the studio we didn't have a producer that was a stage you know where we just signed up with Interscope Records and there was a very prominent producer who lived in my neighborhood who I really wanted him to make the record I'm not gonna name him but he was a very great producer I kind of knew him a little bit and it's that stage where I'm trying to write something to really impress somebody because I, I want to work with somebody great and I want to get in the studio and you can't really start making records until you have songs and you know there, there wasn't a lot of excitement to get with the group my group was also kind of falling apart at the time <laughs> you know a lot yeah. was going on but I'd written this song with this producer in mind because I thought I need to catch him I got to get him something and he came over to my house back when we used, you know listen to music in our cars and I played him a cassette of it that I had just recorded a demo of it 
And he listened to it four or five times straight in my car and just kept saying, play it again, play it again, play it again. And it was a demo I had of, of one headlight that was had the same drum beat. It wasn't a full production. It was just like a drum machine and two guitars and a vocal. Yeah. And a little keyboard, I guess, doing the, all the same parts that became the record were on this little demo. You know, it's the same beat from Do You Think I'm Sexy by Rod Stewart. Which is, you know, it's Al Green trying <laughs> right. to do. You got me off track there with Do You Think I'm Sexy. No, I hadn't noticed yeah. that. But anyhow, he listened to it like five times and he stopped and he said, this could really be something. You got something here. And I went in the house. I thought, I got it. Now I got him. I really want to, it's going to be great. And then I never talked to him again. Yeah. But that's how that works. You know? How did you feel about that burst of, because you could have had a career that was great without having that intense burst of like MTV pop fame. And I don't know if that was even ever part of your plan. How did you feel about that yeah, time I don't in your know. life? Uh, was that part of my plan? Not really. I mean, that was just what was available at the time. That's what yeah. people were doing. That, that was the biggest radio station in the world. Sure. If you say you didn't want to be on it, you're lying. Right. Because that means everybody's hearing your songs right. at the same time. Sometimes 36 times a day yeah, or a week. What was it? A week or a day? Yeah, absolutely. A week. Uh, you know, but that was the time. And a lot of bands, remember, they had to invent the Diamond Award back then. Right. We didn't even sell, like, the top 20 of, how many, how many millions we sold? It wasn't even the top, like, 20, 30 records of that time, that year. Because people were selling 30 million, 20 million records left and right. You did have one of the great VMA's performances of all time with Springsteen that night. I still watch that from time to time. It was fantastic. Yeah, no, I know the song. <laughs> was it MTV or VH1? No, it was MTV Awards. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so a lot happened on that. You know, what I can tell you about that is rehearsing that with Bruce. Yeah. Who I'd known a little bit. That's what I, I mean. I, I've been around him plenty, but that was it'd been a while at that point. I was rehearsing with him in the dressing room, and he was going to take the line, I think, in the last verse. I believe he was taking it where it says, I turn the engine, but the engine doesn't turn. And I, he sang that, and then he stopped for a second. I said, you know, I stole that from you. Because he's got the song, One Step One Up, step Two up. Steps, you know? Yeah. <laughs> where they hit the engine, but she ain't turning. I modified a little bit. <laughs> but because he sang my line right in front of me, I felt like I better acknowledge this. If, so I said, you know, I, I took that line from you, and he chuckled. He goes, yeah, I know. Is the Wallflowers a, a going concern as far as you're concerned? Where are we with that? You know, it's always with me. I can do it and I can do my, you know, I can call it either one. Right now I'm kind of not exactly sure what it is I want to do with that. I'm not sure what I want to do next. Well, if I want to, what kind of record that I want to make. And that's a certain hat that I wear depending on what songs I have. Yeah. I mean, it's, the lineup is a little bit like the original lineup is gone. Is that a permanent state of affairs? Would you ever bring some of those guys back? I would back? think so. Yeah. Very few bands do that thing like R.E.M. or, or U2 or even the Rolling Stones. Very few bands get to do that. And usually one of the reasons that is, is one of the reasons people just stay together, obviously, is just because financially it's, it's a really great idea for people. Yeah. But most bands don't stay together. You put them together as kids and then you grow up at some point and then you realize, like, I don't even want to live with these four people anymore. I and mean, people have the right to change their mind. Yeah. And some people just grow out of it. Some people don't want to travel anymore. I don't feel that way. I like to travel, and I still like being in a band a lot. Um, and I still think that bands make the best records. Yeah. Versus solo artists and bringing a bunch of studio musicians and friends. I mean, those are great, too. But there's something different about being in bands that I'll always find interesting. I mean, Andy, you mentioned that part of the impetus for this movie came from that you were a little bit between. You had done The Wallflowers again, and then... Yeah, so you what know, was in your mind at that point? Well, we'd taken a break for... 
I don't know, seven years or something. I, right. I made a couple of my own records, and then we got back together. In reality, we it just wasn't a really good idea to have gotten back together mm. for simple reasons that, um, you know, whatever causes us to take a break in the first place, we never really sorted that stuff out. Yeah. And it's not, you know, just on another simple level, you know, right now being in rock bands, it ain't for everybody. Yeah. You got to work twice as hard to make maybe a little less than you made ever, you know, but <laughs> yeah. it's, it's up to you. There's not the incentives for doing it. It's not what they used to be. So people's priorities change. People have lives and some people just don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. And that it's also turn, possible yeah. that I'm not that easy to get along with. I don't know. I haven't really considered that. <laughs> well, let's dig into that. <laughs> but it, it was your realization that, oh, maybe we shouldn't have done this and I've brought this band together, but we shouldn't have done this. So now what do I do? That was kind of your a little bit, not to put words in your mouth, but you know, it's my job in that group is always, it's somewhat of a ringleader. I'm, you know, you're trying to motivate everybody and depending on the cast of characters you have sometimes it can be done and sometimes it's really not easily done and people were you know also the industry had changed so much that people i think were very confused i don't think we played to our best strengths and i'm not going to break down all the sure scenarios yeah, yeah. for you but you know, yeah. just, you know it was in, in hindsight this wasn't a good idea i do like the record we made i thought it had a lot of I good things some, about nice it. songs on that yeah i really liked it but it just wasn't a healthy environment i don't think for anybody well what about the break between records in, in the first place it took you a, a long time until 2000 after bringing down the horse like what was that four year well that was from bringing on the horse to breach we were just yeah. on, we were on tour for like almost at least three years yeah, it's the classic thing it's like and then yeah. you know i do remember pulling the plug because it just couldn't stay out there we were going to go back to europe one more time and i just couldn't see it happening and but then also you know you don't have any songs to get started you got to go home you got to write you got to clear your head out you got to figure out what it is you want to write that doesn't happen overnight yeah. Uh, and then it took six months to make that record. And Women in Country, which was, I think, a T-Bone Burnett Correct. production, yeah. was a really nice, like your soul stuff has been really nice and spare. Do you have a bunch of songs that you don't know what to do with at this point? Or you, have you not been writing? What's where I are do. You? I have a bunch of songs. Yeah. We're yeah. going to figure this out and we're going to take a ride on this movie train for a little bit. Uh, and then we'll find a situation to figure out what it is I want to do. Depending on what the song's it's been a while since I've been in the studio. So we'll take a look at them and see if it's a, what kind of record it'll be. Diving into this laurel canyon world and again the comparing it to now where did it leave both of your thinking about sort of the record industry and music itself now versus then i mean for me it didn't really make me think about the music industry i don't want to think about the music industry <laughs> a bunch of guys i don't want to have lunch with <laughs> i want to think about the music sure you know and i think you get to a certain point in your age of your life you sort of start to reflect on what you've done and at that point that i got to i started to reflect about what drew me to California in the first place. Mm. And when I think about it, and I think about the film, I think about that period in a way that it is this innocent period and that there was a lot of kindness. You know, when I think about life today and, you know, music today, there's great stuff there. We, we all know. I mean, Father John Misty, he's a great writer. There's great bands. Uh, you can hear all this, you know, Tame Impala is fantastic. But there's a lot of not kindness today. And there's a lot of, we are motivated by the takedown of a bad guy. That's how we feel good. Or and not so bad guy. Yeah, mm. or not so bad guy, exactly, the celebrity. So in making the film and returning to that time, it made me yearn for a period of innocence where people were just not greedy and not jealous of each other. And it was just the harmony of that idyllic idea that you know maybe the cabal or the community could survive in that way which it didn't but anyway that's what i feel mm. how about you 
I agree. He's some really good word choices in there. I don't know if I can really match that. <laughs> I do somewhat agree with it. The word that comes to mind the whole time you were just speaking is just mayhem. Everything we do just is we're just part of mayhem. And having a trajectory of what it was possible was kind of nice at any different era. If I did this, and I did that, and I do this, and I work hard, I can get here, I can, then th this is where I might be someday. Yeah. But now it's just, it's just all just throw shit up in the air. And like, let's see who gets lucky this year, and then we'll try that too. Right. And then when that doesn't work, we'll wait till something else takes off, and then we'll try to do that too. And it's just every day, and it, it creates a daunting feeling of like, I really want to go to work, I really want to do this and that, but like, I don't even know. There's so much resistance and negativity and shenanigans, you know. That's and it's um, it's created extreme anxiety. Yeah. So, in reference to the movie, like what that was like. Yeah, it sounds pretty nice, man. I, I go check that out. I like to be there where there's a lot of support and there was a lot of tradition and people were working hard at what they were doing. And we didn't get into the me version of songwriting yet, which is later, you mm. know, where everybody's writing about themselves and their feelings. This is when people are writing communally and they're writing, it doesn't have to be about positivity strictly, but it just, all the darkness and people weren't naming their records, things like raw and this is me and honest, like that stuff just didn't really matter yet. Yeah. And I personally don't, none of that stuff moves me very much. That's you know, and it's some well, you see that a lot. Some twenty-two-year-old writes an autobiography, and it's just called raw. Like, what, <laughs> what kind of story could you possibly have to tell us? <laughs> but the focus became really just about people being obsessed with their story being interesting, and the people that I grew up listening to or watching that was not required to think that person was fascinating. That I mean, I had to be in. I had to really like it. I had to be intrigued, but I didn't have to know everything about the person. You know, to come along today and be really successful requires you having a different soul than you might have needed 25, 30 years ago. Because you have to be willing to share intimate things that just didn't used to be required of artists. And you have to be able to get into a, you know, a celebrity match now and then and throw down with people. And like a lot of people just don't want to participate in that stuff. But then you also sound, you know, I don't like to sound tired and old yeah. by bitching about it, saying that this isn't a great time because it, it has to be, but yeah. it's really murky. It's a big mess right now. It'll, right, and rock and roll will be fine. I'm sure of that. It is fine. All right. Well, landing on a positive note. So we've been talking about Echo in the Canyon, the great new documentary from Andy Slater and Jacob Dylan. And this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's Volume Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can. And as always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.